The rest of you, if you will, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. As we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark, as I mentioned earlier, we come now to Mark chapter 9 and what is, at least in the church, called the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. As I mentioned last week, Mark chapter 9, verse 1 is sort of the hinge between uh, the passage that, where Jesus is explaining what it means to follow him and then the connection to what he meant by those standing there not tasting death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. And now in the transfiguration, this is what Jesus was talking about. The kingdom of God has come in power in Jesus. So we'll be looking at verses 2 to 13, but I want to read verse 1 in addition with that. So please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John And led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we now approach the holy ground of your word, you would help us. There's no possible way we could understand the full weight of this apart from your help. So we would ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears so that we would see and hear. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us about your glory, glory that you possess, glory that we will see one day in your return, and glory that you will make us like. Just as John tells us that when we see you, Jesus, we will be made like you. And as Paul tells us that our predestination leads ultimately to our glorification. Lord, when we sing songs about going home, we're talking about glory. 
We're talking about a new body, a resurrected body, a body that's no longer perishable but now imperishable in a world that's fit for the saints because it's fit for God. We long for your kingdom and we long, Lord, for the new heavens and the new earth. We praise you that you have given us this glimpse of glory because you make it crystal clear to us that if we are to follow you, we, would, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. You make it crystal clear that if we want to save our life, we must lose it. And if we lose it for your sake and for the gospel's sake, we will actually save it. So Lord, help us to lose our lives for your sake and for the gospel's sake so that in losing it, we will save it. And as we, as we think about the cost, the high cost, and as we think about the hard road of suffering, I pray that you would remind us of the finish line. That we walk through the valley of suffering, but that valley leads us to the mountaintop of glory. And that eternal weight of glory far exceeds this light momentary affliction that we endure in this life. Lord, there's no possible way we could understand that apart from your help. So help us. Create in us a craving for your word. Give us humble hearts that are receptive to you and help us to see Jesus in all his glory. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. In just a few hours, two teams, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles, will face off to determine who is the best team in the National Football League. And you know how it works. In order to determine who the best team is, you've got to win. Because that's how victory works, right? Whether it's on the football field, or it's on the field of battle, or it's in the the burning intensity of family game night around your kitchen table. Everybody knows in order to be victorious, you have to win. And that's why those family game nights get so brutal sometimes. <laughs> Everybody knows the saying, as, as the saying goes, if you want to be the best, you have to beat the best. That's how victory works. In order to be the one that is considered to be victorious, you have to win. So imagine the disciples' surprise and even dismay then when they finally understand who Jesus is and when he confirms for them his identity as the Christ, the Messiah, the the one who would be seated on the throne of David. The king of kings and lord of lords, the one who would bring back the glory of Israel, who would throw off oppression from not only Rome, but any other nation. The one who would put Israel back on top of the world, and in fact, in a way greater than they had ever experienced before. Imagine their surprise when they realize that Jesus is that one, and then he begins to talk not about his victory, but about his suffering and his death. 
if you've paid attention, and it's not really worth paying attention to, but if you've paid attention, leading up to Super Bowl Sunday, there are all kinds of interviews. Gets a little old, honestly, but they've got to put something on TV. All kinds of interviews, and they talk with players, and they talk with coaches, and it's all geared toward the game, toward the, toward the big event, toward the moment when they will give it their all, they will put it all on the line in order to be the victor, to, to defeat the other team. So imagine if in those interviews, someone says, you know, the key to this game for us, we've just got to give it away. We have to lose. And in fact, not only do we have to lose, we have to get whooped. We're looking for zero points on the scoreboard and an infinite amount of points on the other side. That's the key to the game for us. If you were a fan of one of those teams, you'd be in your chair, well, you'd be out of your chair, going, what? Are you kidding me? Come on, guys, let's put some effort into it. Well, now you know how the disciples were feeling when Jesus began to talk to them about how it was necessary that the Son of Man must suffer and die. It's no wonder that Peter rebuked Jesus. He had a completely different understanding of what the Messiah would come to do. And so Peter's like that fan who hears his team saying the key for us is just to, just, just to lose just to be absolutely demolished on the field. Peter's going, Jesus, I think you're misunderstanding your role here. Because Peter didn't understand at the time that in order to accomplish the greatest victory that the world has ever seen, it was necessary that Jesus lay down his life. You see, the kingdom of God cannot come in power until there is atonement first. Because the kingdom of God is meant to have inhabitants, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, as Paul says. But here's the reality, friend. You can't get into the kingdom of God on your own. You need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ when all you bring to the table is perfect sinfulness. Complete and entire sinfulness. Then no matter how many good things you do, the reality is they're all stained by your unrighteous heart. What you need is not a conquering king. What you need is a dying savior who becomes a conquering king. And so that's what the disciples needed to understand. As as the song in heaven says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, in order to gain the greatest victory in humankind, in, in, in history, it was necessary that Jesus suffer and die so that he could purchase a people for God. We need to understand then that the road to glory runs right through the valley of suffering. That without suffering, there would be no glory. But the good news is that suffering is what actually leads to glory. 
It was the suffering of Jesus that would ultimately lead to his own glory. And here in this passage, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that the hard road of following him will also lead to their glory. So the veil of his flesh is momentarily pulled back so that they can see his true glory. They know his identity, although they've got it twisted a bit. They know his identity, and now he lets them see his glory. As John says it, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter and John And James, too, though he was beheaded not long after the ascension of Jesus. But Peter and John never forgot this moment. And in fact, it was was this very moment when God showed them the finish line that they constantly looked back to as they ran the race of suffering. Because they knew that suffering for Jesus would bring the glory of Jesus. And for anyone who has seen the glory of Jesus, then you understand that any amount of suffering for Jesus is entirely worth it. And that's what we need, isn't it? Suffering grabs your attention. What you need in your suffering is a bigger vision and a better view. You need the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to show us this morning how Jesus reveals that to the disciples. And then I want to move to show us how Jesus reveals that to you. Jesus is not going to appear here today, or at least I don't think, in this display of glory. But the reality is that as Paul and Peter both will tell us, that in the gospel, we have the very same revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear, and eyes to see, let them see. Having attempted to swallow the hard pill of what it is to follow Jesus in chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, as they hear about the necessity of dying in order to live, we understand what that means now on this side of the finished work of Jesus. But imagine what it would have been like to follow this great teacher, this one who can heal and walk on water and raise the dead. And then all of a sudden he turns to you and he says to you, listen, if you really want to live, you've got to die. I think we would all be scratching our heads going, what in the world are you talking about? But it would be after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It would be after the sending of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit would teach them all that they needed to know about the words of Jesus. Jesus wanted to teach them this lesson that what waited for them on the other side of suffering, what waited for them as they continually died to themselves, continually took up their cross, and continually followed him was the very same glory that he had. They needed to see it because they were going to live through the suffering of Jesus. And then with the backdrop of his glory in mind, they too were going to suffer for Jesus. And that's the very same lesson that we need, brothers and sisters. 
Because here's the reality. If you want to live for Jesus, then you must be willing to suffer for Jesus. And if you are not willing to suffer for Jesus, then you should expect nothing from Jesus. We need this very same vision of the glory of Jesus Christ because the the path of life that Jesus explains is still as relevant today as it was back then. In Matthew 7, 14, he said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So we need the vision of Jesus Christ as the finish line to that narrow gate and to that hard way so that when you're tempted to say, I'm not sure if it's worth it, you would remember Jesus. And you would remember that when you see Jesus in his return, you will be made like Jesus. And you will realize that anything compared to Jesus is nothing, including suffering. And so I think it's most helpful then for us to think about one point as we work our way through this passage. Here's the one thing I want you to walk away with. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to see the glory of Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus and answer the call of at the end of chapter 8 to Die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, to lose your life in order to save it, then you're going to need to see the glory of Jesus. Because as you know full well, many people have put their hand to the plow and turned back. You probably have loved ones who once were following Jesus until it got hard. And just as Jesus explained in Matthew, in Mark chapter 4, about those different types of soils and those different types of uh, growth that happen, some sprout up, but when it gets hard, they wither and die. We know people who have followed Jesus, but when things got hard, they said, you know what, I'm done. It's not worth it. If this is what it is to be a Christian, you can have it. Maybe I'll be a, you know, sit on your couch and me and Jesus got our own thing going on type of Christian, which is not really a Christian, to be clear. But I'm not really interested in actually obeying Jesus. So we need to understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to see the glory of Jesus. Our text breaks up into two different and distinct parts here. First of all, in verses 2 to 8, we have the climb up to the top of the mountain where they see the glory of Jesus. And then in verses 9 to 13, they they come back to earth and they're reminded of the suffering. I think it's a good paradigm for us to think about as we walk through life. We need the mountaintop experience of the glory of Jesus as we walk on the earth through the suffering for Jesus. And so let's look first of all in verses 2 to 8 on top of the mountain, this experience on top of the mountain that so captured John and so captured Peter, one that Peter said we actually have something even better than in the word of God itself. So on the mountaintop, first in verses 2 to 8, in verses 2 to 3, we see the glory of Jesus revealed. Verse 1 was the promise of what they would see 
that before they died, they would, they would see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. And then Mark lets us know that after six days, then Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Mark isn't concerned. None of the gospel writers are concerned with telling us which mountain this was. Perhaps because if we knew which mountain this was, we would turn it into a shrine of some sort. In fact, that's what the Eastern Church has done with the supposed sites of this transfiguration. He just says they went up on a mountain. Luke tells us that they went up to pray, but Mark is more concerned with just the fact that they go up on top of a high mountain. And then he tells us in his, in his sort of clear, plain language what happens. He just says, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis. He was changed. That's what it means. His appearance was altered in a significant way so that it was crystal clear that something was unique about this man named Jesus who had just been confirmed to be the Christ. He was transformed and then Mark describes what his transfiguration or his transformation looked like. Verse 3 says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark uses laundry language, as no launderer on earth could get them. So he's referring to, in our day, what would be something like the laundromat, the professional laundry cleaners, the people that you would take your garment to if it was very dirty and they had all the secret concoctions to get it white, bright white. And Mark says, no person on earth could get Jesus's clothes as white as they appeared to us. So do you know what he's doing? He's making it clear that this launderer was from heaven. That this was no earthly experience. This was no natural experience. This was supernatural. This was the very revelation of the glory of Jesus. And isn't that what John told us the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. That's what John was talking about. This, he says, I was there and I can't explain how Jesus, the one that we were just eating a meal with, who took us up on top of the mountain was changed and radiated this bright light, brighter than, Luke tells us, the flash of lightning. If you're familiar with your Old Testament and what's called theophanies, appearances of the presence of God, then you understand what this language is. That Yahweh wraps himself in garments of light. This is Mark's way of saying Yahweh is in the flesh in Jesus. We've already seen that as Jesus walked on the water and reveals his, his true identity that he is God. And so for a moment, the father pulls back the curtain of Jesus' flesh. You'll notice that he was transfigured before them. Certainly Jesus had the power to transfigure himself, but this is the work of the father according to Mark. The father wants them to see the glory of Jesus, and then he'll come with his voice to testify to his love for Jesus, just as he did at his baptism. 
You see, they're, they're, they're beginning to understand who he is and God wants to make absolutely sure that they are confirmed in their suspicions about who he is because they're going to need it. Because the work of following Jesus is difficult and hard. And so he's transfigured before them. It's interesting to to note that the word transfigured gets used a few other times in the Bible. Two times that you are, I think, probably very familiar with. One you're most definitely very familiar with. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Where there Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do you know what the word for transformed is? It's the word for transfigured. Very same word, very same idea. Paul is saying that as you renew your mind with the truth of the scriptures, what happened to Jesus is happening to you. And he uses it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, a passage that we'll, we'll look at a little bit later. When there he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed or transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, the cool thing about the transfiguration of Jesus is that by his word and by his spirit, he is doing the same thing in you, dear Christian. And while your body gets older and older and the aches and the pains increase and the problems uh, assault you from every direction, the reality is that your inner man is being renewed every single day. This body will one day go into the ground and decay and it will rise again with a better body that will never see the effects of sin. And so as we think about the transfiguration of Jesus, we realize that his transfiguration was certainly something personal and unique to him. It was something that radiated from him, but it's something that we benefit by as the effects of his transfiguration, of his transformation, of the radiance of his glory affect us who believe in him and follow him. That's why you need this. Because if you're not in this, you're not being transformed. You can't pick this up once a week or depend on a preacher once a week and think that this is happening the way that God wills it and intends it to happen. This is why Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those who meditate on the word day and night, for they shall be like trees planted by streams of living water never moved always bearing fruit this is why what we need most to grab our attention is the truth of God's word so how much time do you spend letting other things get your attention This is how you too will be transfigured spiritually. 
And so the glory of Jesus is revealed and they see it and it's this bright light emanating from who he is, brighter than anyone could ever, uh, brighter than anyone could ever get it. And then in verses four to eight, not only do they see the glory of Jesus revealed, but they see the, the glory of Jesus confirmed by two Old Testament heroes and then by the voice of the father himself. Verse four says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. I love Mark's simplicity. I mean, it's just like, so, you know, Peter's telling Mark what to write down. And Peter's like, so, so there we were on this mountaintop. And we were praying. And then all of a sudden, bam, this bright light lit up the whole night sky. It was brighter than anything we had ever seen before. And then all of a sudden, here comes Elijah. And not just Elijah, but Moses with him. And they were just talking to Jesus. I mean, you gotta, if I were Mark writing this down, I'd go, Peter, tell me what they were talking about. Luke actually does tell us what they were talking about. You remember what they were talking about? They were talking about Jesus' departure through his death. Or... Actually, do you know what that word departure that Luke uses is, is actually? His exodus. They were talking about his exodus through his death. Showing us conclusively that Jesus is the better prophet that Moses promised would come. And Jesus leads a people through a better exodus than the first one. And Jesus establishes a better covenant than the old one. And so Elijah with Moses appear. And there's all kinds of guesses at why it was Elijah. Elijah represents the prophets and Moses represents the law. But do you know something? Nobody knows if that's really true. It sounds great. But God isn't concerned to tell us with why they appeared. I think the best explanation, after I've just told you we can't know, I'll tell you what I think the best explanation is. I think the best explanation is Moses and Elijah both had mountaintop experiences with God and his glory. Exodus 24, in fact, is strikingly similar to this mountaintop experience. Moses goes up with three men plus 70 elders The cloud envelops, the the voice from the cloud speaks to him. Jesus goes up with how many? Three. They see his glory, something that Moses couldn't see, though, though Exodus 24 says they saw Yahweh and they saw his feet. Which is which is just Moses' way of being able to try to put to human language something that you can't describe. God is spirit. He has no body except for the body that Jesus has. So, so Moses is just trying to explain, we saw something and it was awesome. And so Elijah and Moses appear in, the, in, on the, in this display of the glory of Jesus on top of the mountain, just as they had experienced God on top of a mountain in his glory, and they're talking with Jesus. But Mark, Luke tells us that what consumes the subject of their conversation was not the glory but the death. 
Today we would say something like it was a cross-centered conversation. Do you have those? Do you have cross-centered conversations? Do you love to talk about the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Do you ever really think much about it? Or are you more consumed with the world's events? I can't believe that we shot down another unidentified object in the air. Did you hear what the Democrats are doing now? I mean, here's the reality. We can have those conversations. But my friend, if that consumes your conversations more than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a serious problem. I'm not sure you understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if you're more concerned about the things of the world. And so they talk about the death of Jesus. And then verse 5 Peter, the hero, says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. (laughs) Understatement of the century. It's good that we're here. But, But I don't mean to pick on Peter because at least he said something. Though sometimes it's better to say nothing when you don't know what to say. But Peter doesn't really have that skill of wisdom in knowing when not to speak, does he? I think Peter had a genuine desire to honor his rabbi, his teacher, his Lord, and to honor two of his heroes, Elijah and Moses. And he did the best thing that he could figure out how to do. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, in our minds, we're going, tents? What in the world? Why a tent? But if you've ever been in, and granted, they're up on a high mountain now, but If you've ever been in a place where the sun shines bright all the time, then you understand the the significance and the importance of shade from the sun. What does a tent create? Shade from the sun. Now, perhaps this was at night, and and maybe maybe I'm off key here, but I think Peter's just going, I want to honor them somehow. Let's build some tents. But Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that he said anything, but Mark makes it crystal clear why he said it. Verse 6 says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Uh, Somebody's got to say something. Hey, Jesus, this is really cool. Let's build some tents. You guys sit back, relax. We'll We'll just throw some reeds up and put some, put some leaves over the top of them real quick. You guys just hang out. We'll be right back. He didn't know what to say because they were terrified. And the word terrified is, a, is, a, is the strongest way you could say that. They were absolutely out of their minds with fear. And yet, notice again that the fear of the Lord does not drive you away from the Lord, but drives you to the Lord. If they were terrified in a certain way, then they would have run down the mountain, right? Screaming their heads off. But they were terrified in a way that compelled them toward Jesus. And that's exactly what the fear of the Lord does. It doesn't push you away, it draws you in. And so he wants to make tents, but, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't acknowledge the request. But it's, it's interesting to note 
When John says, in the verse I've quoted multiple times, John 1.14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, do you know what the word dwelt is? The word became flesh and tented among us, tabernacled among us. It's the exact same word that Peter uses, because that's how you describe a tent. It wasn't that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the sense of he lived here, though he did. It was that the word became flesh and tented or tabernacled among us. You see, Jesus doesn't need a tent because he is God's tent. That's the significance of the incarnation. The glory of God is now in the person of Jesus. And so, what is the tent that Peter would build for him? Nothing. Elijah and Moses don't need a tent either because they don't plan to stay very long. Isn't it interesting to notice, contrary to the thought that when you die, you go into nothingness, or when you die, you fall asleep until the judgment, they're alive. They're alive. When you die, you stay alive in a sense until the great resurrection. You either go to heaven to be with the Lord or you go to hell to begin to pay for your sins. So you've got to make sure that you repent of your sins and you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can be alive like Elijah and Moses were alive. So they don't need a tent because Jesus has his very own flesh. Verse 7 then says, And a cloud overshadowed them. So as if it weren't enough to experience this bright shining glory and these Old Testament heroes, here comes this cloud, the Shekinah glory of God that they had read about so many times, this cloud that they knew descended upon Mount Sinai when Moses was there, this cloud that they knew enveloped the mountain where Elijah was on when the Lord spoke to him in the whisper, this cloud comes down and it envelops them and overshadows them and a voice comes out of the cloud and the voice says something almost identical to what he said at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Why would they need to listen to the beloved son? Because the beloved son had just told them who he is, that he was coming to suffer and die, but rise again three days later, and that if they were to follow him, they too would die. And so they need the testimony from heaven to have the confidence and the courage and the conviction to say, no matter what following Jesus gets us into, we're all in. We need that very same thing, don't we? No matter what following Jesus gets us into, we are all in. No matter what the world says, no matter what people in the church might say, no matter what following Jesus gets us into, we are all in. Are you all in? Are you all in for Jesus? Because when you see his glory in the gospel, you've got no other choice but to be all in you realize nothing's better than Jesus. And so everything, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. 
And so the voice speaks from heaven. This is the father confirming the identity of the son and not just confirming the identity of the son, but confirming his love for the son. Yes, it pleased the father. It was the will of the father to crush the son, but the father never stopped loving the son. It was necessary that the son pay for the sins of his people so that he could purchase a people with his own blood from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. But the father never stopped loving the son and he, he tells the disciples, you need to listen to him. And then verse eight says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Showing us crystal clear who the father was talking about. He wasn't talking about Elijah or Moses. He was talking about someone so much greater than either one of those men. Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of the revelation of God. Jesus is everything. And so they they go on top of the mountain and they have this glorious experience of Jesus. And then in verses 9 to 13, they come back down to earth. They come back down to earth in verses 9 to 13. Verse 9 says, and they were coming down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So now again, they get a charge not to say anything, but this time it's conditional. Don't say anything until the Son of Man rises from the dead. You remember the Son of Man, who who the Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7. He's the one that the Ancient of Days bestows all power and all glory and all authority and an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus combines the Son of Man, the conqueror, with the suffering servant of Isaiah a connection that they did not make until later. So he says, don't say anything until the resurrection. But they, of course, didn't understand because no one would have understood. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What is he talking about? He's going to rise from the dead. It's interesting to remember that they'd seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead already. But they still can't grasp the concept of the resurrection. Do you know why? Because spiritual things are only discerned by spiritual revelation from God. You can't think your way into the knowledge of God. It has to be revealed to you from God himself. And so they wonder what it means. But then verse 11 says, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Perhaps the question was prompted by the very fact that they just saw Elijah. How they saw Elijah? Well, I'll I'll tell you. Because it's, it's proper when you meet someone to introduce yourself by sticking out your hand and saying, hi, nice to meet you, Will Peterson. Just kidding. That's not how they knew it was Elijah. I have no idea how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. But they did somehow. So they asked, probably because they just saw Elijah, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They perhaps didn't know the reference that the scribes were using, but Malachi 4, 4 to 6 says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so they knew Elijah must come before this whole thing goes down. But they're wondering, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? In verse 12, Jesus gives them an answer, but an answer that probably confounded them even more. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see what's happening there? They just saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And who are they thinking about? Elijah. Elijah. But isn't that just like us? We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's certainly responsible and right for us to think about secondary and tertiary theological issues. But how often do those secondary issues trump the gospel of Jesus Christ? Mode of baptism, for instance. Timing of the Lord's return. Anytime we make those issues more important than the gospel, we do the very same thing. And so rather than think about the glory of Jesus, they say, hey, let's talk about Elijah, Jesus. And he says, Elijah does come, but then what does he do to the conversation? He switches it right back to the Son of Man. What you need to think about, disciples, is the Son of Man and his suffering. Here Jesus combines Daniel 7 with Isaiah 53. The Son of Man is the suffering servant that would take away the sins of his people. Here again, you have victory through seeming defeat. Victory through death and resurrection. The only way it could be accomplished. And so Jesus sets their minds right. And then verse 13, he says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Elijah has come, Jesus says. Matthew 17, 13 adds to this explanation, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Who was the Elijah that had come? It was John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? Herod took his head off at the foolish request of his daughter-in-law, his wife's daughter, He didn't so much want to do it, but his reputation was on the line. And when it comes to your reputation or obedience to God, that's a tough choice sometimes. And so Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that as they come back down to earth, they see the glory on the mountain, but they need to remember the reality that the Son of Man will suffer. And so did the forerunner to the Son of Man, and so will everyone else that follows the Son of Man. That suffering is par for the course. Or as Peter says it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, Peter speaks of the pattern of suffering that Jesus has left for us. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called. To, to what? To suffering by doing the right thing. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter lays out, and and we talked about this when we walked through 1 Peter, Peter lays out that the road to heaven, should you choose to walk down it, is a road of suffering. And that's exactly why you need need to see the glory that it leads to. Because if you don't see the glory, you'll say, this is not worth it. He says later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He doesn't mean that you will stop sinning. He means what Paul says in Romans 6, that the bondage of sin is broken over you. And that now you can no longer live in the passions of your flesh, doing what you want, saying what you want, thinking what you want. You can actually now live for the will of God. But the point is, should you go that route, you will suffer. And so the great question then that is before the disciples then, and and the great question that is before the disciples right here, right now, is are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Notice what Paul says in Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But he puts a condition on it. He goes on to say, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You see, it's not just one passage in the Bible that we maybe sometimes have to think about like, Maybe Jesus wants us to suffer, but, but maybe he really just wants all glory all the time. No, it's the overall teaching of the scriptures that the Christian life is a life of suffering. So you understand then why you need the vision of glory. Because you need something that tells you, that convinces you down in your bones that the suffering is worth it. The disciples go up on the mountaintop. They have the most amazing experience that anybody has ever had. Then they come back down to earth and they're met again with the teaching of Jesus and his suffering. They see his glory on the mountain. They come back down to face the reality of his suffering, but they needed the mountaintop of glory to walk through the reality of suffering. We need the same thing, don't we? We need the mountaintop of glory and the revelation of Jesus' glory so that when the reality of suffering comes, as we follow Jesus, we won't turn back. But we'll go on and we'll persevere and we'll endure and we'll be found faithful because the book of Revelation makes it crystal clear what happens if you don't endure. You'll be cast into the lake of fire. Because Because when Jesus saves you, he changes you. He changes everything about you. 
He changes your values. He changes your character. And he convinces you more and more and more that he is worth it. So do you think he's worth it? I mentioned to you that there are several similarities to Moses' experience with God in Exodus 24 on the mountaintop to this very experience with Jesus. I'm not the only one that recognized that. The Apostle Paul also recognized that reality. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. I've referenced verse 18 already. I want you to listen to it. There's a lot there. I'm not going to preach another sermon about this, but what I want you to recognize and to realize is that you might not see Jesus' glory the way the disciples did, but you do see it. He says there, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, now if the ministry of death, he's speaking of the old covenant compared to the new covenant, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If the old covenant came with that glory, won't the new covenant have even more glory, he says? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, was one, what once had, been, had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The old covenant is out. It has no glory because the new covenant trumps it. Indeed, in this case... Oh, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The reality is, if you are a Christian today, then it is because God has removed the veil that once covered your heart to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You didn't see the glory of Jesus the way Peter, James, and John did. You saw it in a better way. Because your sight of the glory of God resulted in your salvation, the transformation of your wicked heart. So when I say that if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to see the glory of Jesus, I'm not saying build a DeLorean and figure out how to get back into time. I'm saying make the gospel your focal point. 
Because that is the greatest revelation of the glory of Jesus until he comes back again. And Peter says, as we have already read, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the mountain. He tells us about his experience, but then he tells us that we have something even better. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this prophetic word? Do I have to turn on TBN and and listen to a false teacher and get some sort of personal insight, a prophetic word for me personally? No. Listen to what he says is the prophetic word. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, I saw Jesus in his glory, but you have something better. And you had better pay attention to it, he says. Because it's not a book of mere men. This is God's word to you. You want to see the glory of Jesus? Meditate on the gospel of Jesus and soak yourself in the word of God. That's how you see the glory of Jesus. And it's not bright shining like it was then, but it will be one day. And it will continually transform you, transfigure you as you renew your mind. And God, by his spirit and by his word, will change you. So that you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, you are secure in Jesus Christ, but you better work it out, is what Paul's saying. And Paul's saying, if you realize that you are secure in Jesus Christ, then you also realize that nothing is more important than that. And that no matter what comes, I will suffer for Jesus because I will follow Jesus because Jesus will bring me glory when he reveals his glory to me on the day when I see him face to face. So the question remains, have you seen this glimpse of glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord God, 
We can't possibly understand what all of this means apart from your word and your spirit. So teach us. Bless the seed of your word that has been sown here today to bear fruit in our hearts and help us to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll call the ushers forward now for our offering. This is the time of our service where we give thanks to God through our giving and we meditate on the word that we have just heard as well. I'll offer a word of prayer and then the men will pass the plates out. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these gifts. Thank you that you are primarily concerned with your glory and you have opened our eyes too to be concerned with your glory. Use these gifts to advance your gospel so that your glory would be seen and recognized and you would be worshipped rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.